God, the word says that every morning your mercy is new, and we need it. We desperately need it. God, we're here, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come fill us. Give us a word, a message. You left your scripture here to not just be a history of the world or a story, but to reveal who you are, to reveal yourself to us. And this year, we are endeavoring to fall deeper in love with you, Jesus, knowing that in you, every satisfaction, every longing of our soul can be satisfied. And so, God, we ask you to reveal yourself afresh to us today through these stories, through build our faith, God, that we would, something would shift in us that would help us to trust you even the more. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You doing good? You awake? All right. So uh, this has been an interesting study for me, and I love going back into the book of Genesis for various reasons. And last week, we kind of dug into the story of Noah and the flood and really what was happening prior to the flood and, and found out uh, some pretty amazing things that were going on during that period of time, some things that we have discounted as mythology and legend for many, many years. As a matter of fact, secular society still discounts it. They discount just about everything in the Bible. But, uh, but uh, we look at the world and some of the things that have been recorded and we dismiss it as mythology and legends, things that didn't really happen but were fantastical in the historical record. And we found out last week that actually there's validity to many of the things that we see in our world. We discovered how the enemy, the kingdom, the demonic kingdom through these fallen angels had left heaven, their heavenly abode, and came to earth after the fall, just before the flood, and they took on humanity, human flesh. They began to mingle with humanity and to have offspring with human women that were not human. They weren't angelic. They were these abominations before God, these corruptible beings the Bible calls giants, and these creatures were waging war not just with their parents, these fallen angels, but against mankind. They were devouring everything that uh, God had created. They were polluting and corrupting the fabric of creation, even down to the genetic code of humankind. And these, uh, these fallen angels and these offspring were literally destroying the world that God had made. And God saw the wickedness in the world and how everything that he made had been corrupted. And God sent a worldwide flood. The Bible records, if you go and read the story, and I encourage you to do this this week, go back, begin in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and read through the account of creation and the story. But the Bible says when the flood hit the earth, that it went even far above, the water went far above the tallest mountains. That, that God destroyed everything, made it impossible for a single thing that creeped and crawled along the earth to survive. And many times we look at this and we say, well, he did it because of sin. There was sin in the world. And we take this idea that God did it because he was angry at sin. And this is where I want to encourage you to don't look at what God did or don't determine who you think God is through the lens of what God did. The Bible says in the, the book of John, uh, the Testament of John in the, the letters in the New Testament, that God isn't just loving but God is, by nature, love itself. That we wouldn't know love without God. That he embodies, he's the very definition of what love is. And so if God is loving, he can't be mean, vindictive, and evil in sending the flood. If God is love, then the flood wasn't an act of evil or anger or, or wrath as we normally would take it. So we can't look at what God did and determine who God is by what he does. We have to look at who God is and determine 
what he did through who he is. We have to look through everything he does through the lens of who he is, and God is love. God sent the flood not because he was angry, but because he was grieved in his heart. God was heartbroken at what was happening to his people. He was watching as mankind, as the world that he created, man, animals, plants, were being corrupted and literally transformed into something they were never intended to be. And it grieved his heart. And if God had not intervened, if he had not stepped in and put a stop to what was happening, there would not have been a single person left that he could love because of the corruption in the world. What he made was good. And now what was good had been turned into complete evil. So God, knowing the times were important, the times were vital that he step in to do something, he found a man, the Bible says, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. God found a man who not only loved the Lord, he was faithful, he was obedient, he was a righteous man as he honored the Lord, but it also says that he was genetically pure, which means his bloodline, his genetic line, did not fall into the corruption that these angels were administering in the world, that they had remained uh, physically pure. And so God chose Noah and his family to be the family that would repopulate the earth. So he saves the eight. He saves Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. He saves them and puts them in the ark, and then God destroys everything that there is. And they spend upwards to about a year on this boat. Can you imagine that? A giant boat, you're crammed in with you know, your eight family members and two of every kind of species there. You imagine how much poo they had to shovel? I mean, come on, that's a lot of poo. Especially if you have a dinosaur in there, that's not a stall I want to be shoveling out. You know, horses are bad enough. But they were on there for a year, and finally, after a year, the floodwaters recede. They're able to leave the ark. And the first thing that Noah does after they leave the ark is worship the Lord. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 20, Here's what the Bible records. It says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and there he sacrificed as burnt offerings the animals and birds that had been approved for that purpose. And the Lord was pleased with the aroma of the sacrifice and said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Think about this. God was pleased with the aroma of Noah's sacrifice. Now, this phrase, the aroma of the sacrifice, is a phrase you'll read often in Scripture. Uh, all throughout Leviticus, as they're offering these different sacrifices, he says that if you do this, it'll be a sweet smell or a sweet aroma to the Lord. Noah's sacrifice was not a sweet aroma because he knew how to spice up his meat. He, you know, he didn't put some, you know, jerk rub on there and then light it on fire, and God's like, mmm, that smells good, you know, like you would passing, uh, you know, the, the barbecue restaurant or anything like that. The reason why it was a sweet aroma is because he offered it as an act of worship and love from his heart. That it wasn't that this is what I have to do. He's saying this is what I get to do. Because what did God do? He saved me. He saved my family. He saved us not just from the flood, but from the evil that was unleashed into the world. He rescued me. And so now I'm displaying my heart and my affection for him through this sacrifice. And what's significant about this is that it wasn't just pleasing to the Lord, but look at what it says. He, God said that it, the sacrifice pleased him, and then he said to himself, this is God having a conversation with himself, he says, I will never again curse the ground because of the human race. Even though everything they think or imagine is bent toward evil 
even from childhood. I'll never again destroy all living things. As long as the earth remains, there will be planting and harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day, and night. Because of Noah's sacrifice, God makes a vow to himself. And here this vow is that he would never destroy the earth by flood again. He'd never destroy all life from the planet ever again. This is powerful. Think about what this says about your ability to sway the heart of God through your acts of worship. About giving yourself fully to God and letting your heart just minister to him what God might be willing to do on your behalf or keep your family from or the world from because of your heart being so connected. Because of Noah's sacrifice, the heart on display, God vows never to destroy the earth. What does this also say about God? What this says about our Heavenly Father, even though he's saying that even from childhood, their hearts are bent towards evil. He's not saying that we're completely evil. He's saying that there's something in us, this nature that's bent towards sin, bent towards evil, that, that they're always going to have a tendency to stray away. They're always going to have a tendency to leave my righteous path and go towards the, the way of evil and wickedness. But even so, I make this vow that I will not destroy them again. What this says about God is that God values your heart more than he abhors your sin. God values your love and your heart more than he abhors your sin. Is sin wrong? Yes. Does God hate sin? Yes. Does sin separate you from God? Yes. But what is God doing in spite of your sin? He's pursuing your heart. He's pursuing after you. God is so interested in your heart and your love being returned to him that he was willing, even understanding the depravity of our souls and the nature of our sin, say, I'm not going to destroy it like that again because of what I'm receiving from Noah in this moment. Your heart expressed in worship, in praise, in service, in obedience to God is so valuable to him. It's far more valuable than we even realize. And though God understood this reality for mankind, he makes this promise to never strike down all living things, and he seals that promise with his rainbow in the sky. Every time you see a rainbow, it's a reminder to not only us, but also God reminding himself, I made a promise to never destroy the earth like that ever again. It's God's love on display. And not only does he put the rainbow and makes a promise not to destroy, but then he guarantees to take care of us by ensuring and sustaining the seasonal cycles. That there will always be planting a harvest, cold and heat, summer, winter, day and night. God himself is guaranteeing that he will make sure that world, the world continues as it does so that we can thrive, we can live, and we can exist. It's a God of love. One day after this event, we don't know how long it's been, but you can imagine the emotional duress Noah and his family were under after experiencing everything that they just went through. Noah plants a vineyard. He harvests the crop. He harvests the grapes. He makes wine out of the fruit, and he becomes highly intoxicated. Matter of fact, he passes out completely naked in his tent. And um, this is, uh, was not a very respectful or seemingly uh, event in his life, but the scripture says that as he's passed out naked in his tent, his son Ham comes by and sees the nakedness of his father and then goes, tells his brothers about his father being passed out drunk naked in his tent. And, uh, and it seems like 
kind of a harm, harmless thing except for what happens next in the story. In the translation of the scripture in the original language where it says, and Ham saw the nakedness of his father, it doesn't mean he just saw his father naked. It actually means that he gazed upon his father. That when he looked at his father, it wasn't just a glance, it was a gaze. It was, there was an intent of sexual perversion that was intended toward his father. And when he goes and tells his brothers about it, he wasn't just joking about dad. It says he was boasting about it in order to get them to get involved in the process. He went to his brothers to try to get them to join him in whatever he was planning to do or whatever he had already done. And his brothers were abhorred at what happened. And so when they go into his father's tent, they get a sheet. They walk backwards so they don't see his father. They cover his father's naked, their father's nakedness and dispel the shame that Noah was displaying for all to see. When Noah comes to and finds out what his son Ham did, he's very angry. And he curses his son, not just his son, but his son's son Canaan. He curses Canaan and all of their descendants while he blesses Shem, the oldest brother, and Japheth, the other brother who covered his nakedness. And he blesses them and curses Ham. And Ham's line begins to display the same tendencies we saw from Genesis at the fall through the line of Cain. We see a group of people who not only walk away from God, begin to turn against God altogether. And Ham has another son named Cush, who has a son who the Bible calls Nimrod. Somebody say Nimrod. Nimrod. I don't know if you've ever called somebody a Nimrod, but usually we, you know, say that when somebody cuts us across the, uh, you know, cuts us off as we're driving. It's the name we use to call someone an idiot, usually. Uh, But uh, Nimrod was not the name of this individual, but more so the title. The name Nimrod actually means rebel or rebellious, rebellion. And Nimrod was famous because he begins to turn the hearts of mankind against the Lord. And Nimrod is a very important person in the role of history because he's associated with two other key figures in the historical record. There's a man named Sargon of Akkad, who is the first emperor or king of Mesopotamia. And then there's another more legendary character named Gilgamesh, who the first epic or the first poetic literature of that time, the Epic of Gilgamesh, is written about or referred to. Nimrod, Sargon, and Gilgamesh are one and the same. They are the same individual. And Nimrod has this very important role in history because beginning in Genesis chapter 11, where we're going to read the main text of our story, something happens in history that forever changes the landscape of the world. And as we're looking at this story about how God is pursuing the heart of his people and how he's intervening to make sure we're not overcome by death and destruction and wickedness, In Genesis chapter 11, there's a city called Babel. It's an ancient city in Mesopotamia, in the land of Shinar, Babylon. And in this city, Nimrod commissions the people to build a giant tower. And this is where our reading begins, beginning in verse 1. It says, At that time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone and tar was used for mortar. They said, come, let's build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. 
But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower that the people were building. Look, he said, the people were united and they all speak the same language. After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages. Then they won't be able to understand each other. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world and they stopped building that city. That is why the city was called Babel, because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In the same way, he scattered them all over the world. So this is the birthplace of the different races, the different languages, the different tribes in the culture that we have. This is a popular story that's actually widely dismissed from scholars and uh, philosophers and teachers in modern society because of a secular, more evolutionary understanding. We dismiss God altogether. We understand that man just kind of, over time, adapted, created language, and that's how it disseminated across the earth. However, the record of history left in the archaeological record for this famous city and time period actually supports the biblical narrative more so than an evolutionary frame of mind. If we think about this story, here they're, they're building a tower. It seems like they just wanted it to reach into the sky. They, they wanted to become famous. What was different between what they were doing and what we do today? I mean, we have skyscrapers today that are so tall, it dwarfs any kind of ancient megalithic structure that we have in the historical record. So why would God come down, see what they were doing, and say, this is bad enough that if I don't step in and, and confuse them, that they could continue on into great evil, and it would be bad for the world. Well, the recording of Nimrod's endeavors in several different books, the book of Jasher and the Epic of Gilgamesh, tell us exactly why God was concerned with what they were doing in the city. First, we understand they were building a building called a ziggurat. Somebody say a ziggurat. A ziggurat. This is a famous ancient megalithic structure that you can find all over the world. They were building this, this structure, and ziggurats were always tied to a temple. So you have a large structure, a large tower, and a temple right next to it. The ziggurat was considered the stairway or pathway into the heavens. And at the top, there would be a shrine dedicated to an idol or a false god. And they believed that that was the meeting place where man could intersect with the spiritual realm. And so at the base of the ziggurat, they would have a temple where they would bring in their sacrifices, their tributes, the things that were required by their gods in order to receive blessing, whether it was over the harvest or the rains. And they would sacrifice in the temple, and they would then worship at the top of the ziggurat as a place they believed that God would actually dwell or intersect with mankind. So they're building this type of structure in this city that the Bible calls Babel. We know it goes by another name. Nimrod was leading the people, in essence, back to the pre-flood type of uh, circumstance or era as when the angels fell from heaven and were intermingling with human beings. He was trying to reestablish contact with the angelic realm. In the Akkadian language, in this uh, location, the name Babylon actually means the gate of God. So in the, the Akkadia or in Mesopotamia, Babylonia in this time, these ziggurats were considered gates of God so that not only could angels or beings come into our reality, but possibly man could go into their reality. So they weren't simply building a skyscraper. They were trying to develop a way to get, essentially, their gods back into reality. Uh, Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, he 
tells us uh, more detail that Nimrod was actually trying to find a way to enter into heaven, the dwelling place of God, to kill God and set himself up as God. And he wanted to exact revenge on God for killing his forefathers with the flood. Nimrod did not respect the Lord. He hated the Lord. And in the book of Jasher, this ziggurat was built so tall that it would essentially protect people from the flood because they feared that God would destroy the earth again, that he would come and destroy them. So they were building a tall tower to reach into heaven to kill God and keep themselves safe from any future judgment. Uh, and other records show that they even tried to shoot arrows into heaven to try to take out the heavenly realm. Gilgamesh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, it says that Gilgamesh went into the Lebanon mountains to find God, and as he was going into the mountains, he came upon a beast he claims is the God who sent the flood, beheaded the beast, and brought the head back into the city, and claimed that he killed God, that no longer man would have to fear the, this God who judged the earth. In our present day, there's a German philosopher named Friedrich Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche it was famous for saying the term God is dead. Have you heard that phrase? God is dead. It's a phrase that uh, in philosophy, popular philosophy uses to uh, really advance the atheistic and evolutionary mindset in our world. And through this, his writings in this philosophy, atheism and evolutionary thinking and science has become the dominant view in, in our world. But Friedrich Nietzsche wasn't the first one to claim God is dead. Nimrod was. Nimrod claimed to have killed God, to have rid humankind from the fear that this creator God could ever bring a flood like this again, and he set himself up as God in this city of Babylon. And they began to worship Gilgamesh, or Nimrod, as a god himself. Now, what's interesting to me is they, even during this period of time, the rainbow still manifested in the sky. And so you have to question, like, why didn't they see the rainbow and say God promised to not flood the earth again? That God promised not to do something like this again. And, and I think it's easy to see, and we wrestle with this in our own hearts sometimes, is that sometimes we look at our pain, we look at our struggle, we look at things we don't understand, and then we look at God being all-powerful and saying, well, God, why didn't you stop this? If you didn't stop it, then you must have caused it. And so we begin to interpret who God is based upon our experiences and what we see in the world. And it's not a far cry to say they stopped looking at the rainbow as a promise of God and more so as a banner of victory of God. That the rainbow became a, a symbol of their demise, their defeat, the, the destruction of man rather than the promise of God to forever love and take care of humanity. And we do this all the time with our lives and in our world. And God now, as he is looking at this movement of not just removing God from society, making God dead of no avail, to reestablish uh, kingship and godship of false gods as was before the flood, now God is seeing how both the descendants of Ham were bringing corruption on the earth through what they were doing in this city, and they were beginning to dominate over the other lines of Noah, of Shem and Japheth, who were also in the general area. And Shem actually was the only son that is said to have worshipped God and trusted the Lord like Noah. From here, we can see in the archaeological record that when God intervenes, he confuses the languages and stops the building of this 
tower in this city that something in our world actually makes a shift there's what's called the Uruk expansion where cultures begin leaving this area and settling in other parts of the earth and language begins to pop up written forms of language begins to pop up all over the world and for me when I can actually see what the world is revealing in the historical record when I can see with my own eyes the things that have been found that verify scripture it actually builds my faith and so what I want to do just for a few moments is show you a clip of a, a conversation with Dr. Douglas Petrovich. Uh, he is a uh, historian, he's an archaeologist, and he received his Ph.D. in Near Middle East Studies from the University of Toronto. He's been digging and excavating all over the Middle East, and he's going to share a little bit of what he found that verifies not only the existence of the Tower of Babel, but how what we see in the world, it actually confirms what the Bible talks about is what happened in this period of time. So go ahead and show that clip. I know that you have spent a lot of time looking at that issue of the Tower of Babel and trying to understand actually where uh, it really did occur. What have you found? Well, what I've found essentially is a gold mine hmm. within the historical and archaeological record. And basically, the site of Eridu was called Babel in ancient times in a number of sources. And it's one of seven or eight cities that were called Babel. And it's the only one that meets all of the historical requirements for the Tower of Babel. It was around at the right time. We have diagnostic pottery and other forms of material culture from the later Rook period that are found at Eridu. And we have very fascinating two forms of monumental architecture. One, we have a temple that existed in 18 different phases. And in every phase, it grew in its size and its complexity. Uh -huh. And that final phase of the temple, it was abandoned immediately, right at the time of the late Uruk expansion. Mm. Mm. And catacorner to the temple was an absolutely enormous platform. And that platform was so large, it dwarfed this large temple that existed. Do you think that could be the foundation of the Tower of Babel? Absolutely. In fact, what archaeology demonstrates is that the foundations of that temple display the kinds of diagnostic material culture from the later Rook period. And they found that the original bricks that were added onto it were from that period. Mm. But it was never completed. It wasn't until hundreds of years later during the third dynasty of Ur, that the kings of the dynasty decided that this eyesore in their neighboring city of Eridu was no longer to, to sit uncompleted. So they completed this structure, which is exactly what we see in other areas around Mesopotamia and beyond, known as a ziggurat. And the ziggurat essentially is the equivalent of a tower. So I would suggest to you that that uncompleted tower that wasn't completed until hundreds of years later at Eridu on that massive platform, that is the Tower of Babel. Wow. It's amazing. It's fascinating. And this, this video is about 20 minutes long where they go into detail about the language and how it developed and, and how the you know, hieroglyphs and different types of writing came out of this. It's just, it's just mind-boggling. But there is evidence that shows that this isn't just made up in fairy tale. This actually happened. 
and in the story is evidence for the tower the expansion of people and so the question is why did God confuse the language why did he intervene in this moment and I believe it's the same reason why he sent the flood and that was to prevent mankind from going back to such a state of evil and wickedness that they couldn't recover from what they were doing and so he brought this confusion into the world separated the languages to prevent mankind from being united in evil again and not long after this event as he stops the work at Babel as he as he begins to um, cause people to leave from that area we're told about another man named Abram in the book of Genesis and Abram is one of the most significant figures in all of the Bible without Abram many of the rest of the Bible could not have come into being but Abram lived for a short period during the life of Noah and Shem. They were still alive during that period of time. And he very well could have heard the stories from the mouths of the ones that went through the flood themselves about what happened before and after the time of the flood. But Abram was from a city called Ur, which is 19 kilometers from the city of Eridu. He's right in the general geographical area of where the Tower of Babel Many archaeologists believe the Tower of Babel was the place where God separated the languages. During When Abram was old enough to be uh, a husband and he got married, he and his brothers were married, his father Terah moved them out of that area and they were heading towards the land of Canaan, but they stopped in Haran, which is now modern-day Turkey, during the time of this Uruk expansion. So as we look at Abraham's life, his life is not separate from the Tower of Babel, but it begins because of what happened at the Tower of Babel. God separated the languages. No longer could there be communication between tribes. So people began to depart from one another, and Terah took his family, who no longer fit in the culture of that region, and began to settle in another place about 700 miles away from this original geographic location. And just as God intervened with the flood and God intervened with the Tower of Babel, God intervenes one more time in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 4 in Abram's life. God comes to Abram one day and he says, Leave your native country, your relatives, your, fa your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous. I will be, you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram departed as the Lord had instructed, and Lot, his nephew, went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. So it wasn't enough that Abram went 700 miles away with his father to Haran. He wasn't yet where God had destined and purposed him to be. So God shows up one day, and put yourself in Abram's shoes, right? We have, no, we have no context for this conversation. Imagine you wake up one morning, you're you know, in the bathroom, you do your business, and then you start brushing your teeth, you're barely awake, and you just hear this voice. Abram, you need to leave. You know, and I'm just like, what is going on here? And, and I say, okay, God, where, where do you want me to go? I'm not going to tell you, but I'll tell you when you get there. I'm just like, what? You know, what is, what is that? You know, how do you, how do you just do that? Just go, and when you get there, I'll, I'll let you know. I mean, like, none of us would probably do that. We have a hard time not getting down the street and around the corner without our GPS. You know, but this is what he told Abram to do. Pack up and go, and when you get there, I'll let you know. But if you go, I am going to bless you. 
in that land that I've prepared for you, that place where I'm leading you out of confusion and into this promised land, it is a land where I will make you into a great nation. It is a place where I'm going to bless your life beyond comprehension. I'm going to stand against those who oppose you. I'm going to fight for you. The God of heaven is promising to fight for you, Abram. And through all the world, they will be blessed simply by you and your family line. That because of your obedience, your faithfulness, the entire world is going to be impacted through your life. I believe God orchestrated this confusion at Babel not just to slow down the wickedness in the world, but to keep Abram and his family from falling prey to the pressures of that society. The influence of the godlessness in that culture, a culture where only the worship of false gods and kings was the norm. He draws Abram out of this land through this expansion so that one day Abram will be at the right place at the right time for God to call on him to take yet another step. God had a place of blessing prepared, and Haran wasn't it. There was another location. And in order to discover the blessings of the promised land, Abram had to take a step of faith. He had to follow what God was laying on his heart. And what I see here in history is that God is so good to us. This is not just a story that's just good information. This reveals how good God is, how good his heart is for us, that he's not content with leaving us in a place of self-destruction. He's not content with leaving us in a place where we're going to just squander and, and just be absorbed with confusion. He wants to lead us out of the mess and into his blessing and his promises. And sometimes if we, we get into a situation in life, we might enter a career or a job and it's meeting ends meet for a while and we have these dreams of, you know, God wants us to do this with our lives and we have those dreams, but because this is meeting our immediate need, we give ourselves over to it and before long, it dominates our schedule. It dominates everything about us. We don't have any time to explore what God wants us to do because if we take time off, we might lose our job and we get penned in to this thing and our boss is a jerk and I leave feeling worse off than I did when I went in there and all this stuff happens in our lives and it just creates this this season of difficulty and confusion because we're boxed in into this this job that is not helping us become who God created us to be sometimes we can be pursuing a relationship and we think man this is the one man did you see the way she looked at me or do you see the way he looked at me I mean this this is it you know, we zinged, and, and now, now we're, uh, we're, we're connected for life, and this is going to be it, and we start pursuing that, and we're so infatuated with that person that we get those blinders on, and we don't see the warning signs, the red signs that, that are showing up that this person is not good for you. And we commit, and maybe we take that next step, and we move in together, and we start, you know, getting deeper and deeper involved, and then the abuse comes. Maybe it starts verbally, but then it comes physically. But we love them, and so it's okay, and so we forgive, and then we, we get caught in this torrent of abuse, and now we can't leave because of how devastated you know, everyone around us would become and how I would look, and, and they're really just a good person inside, but I'm just, you know, and we get in this state of confusion. Sometimes we can have a hobby that seems fun, but the investment of time and resources that we give ourselves over to it begin taking a toll on our family bond or connection leading to a more distant and dysfunctional realities in our family and in our homes. We can enter into 
situations and circumstances in our lives where really we're just existing in confusion when God has something better and something greater. Sometimes we can be involved in a, in a struggle, a stronghold, or a sin we can't overcome, even if we wanted to. And it just seems like no matter how hard we try, we can't get ourselves out of the rut. I know in, in my personal life, there was a time, there was a season where I was trying to serve God with my life, do everything right, but I had something in my life I could not break. No matter how hard I wanted to stop, no matter how hard I wanted to be free, no matter how hard I wanted to push it down, keep it quiet, never talk about it again, never see it again. It would always rise up in my life. And it got to the point where it almost destroyed me, my family, and everything else. I was in a place of confusion. How could I love God but yet do this? How could I want to serve God but yet be caught up in this? And I needed God to come through and deliver me out of that confusion, just like we all do in many ways in our lives. Sometimes the confusion is not so serious. Sometimes we just get caught up in doing religious things where we have no real relationship with God that really is transforming. We just have a heart full of apathy. This religious participation becomes an idol. Just like our job becomes an idol, a relationship becomes an idol. We get so caught up in doing the religious thing that we don't have a real heart connection with God, but yet this apathy makes us continue to go on as if everything's normal. Someone told me this week that if God hasn't spoken to you in a week and you haven't responded to God in a week, how can you call yourself a follower of Jesus? If you, God is speaking to you, God's always speaking, and our responsibility as his followers is to follow what he says, and we're not listening and we're not following, how can we even call ourselves a follower? Sometimes we get caught up in this mindset of apathy that keeps us stuck because we're not hearing and we're not responding. We're just existing in a state of spiritual confusion. The hardest thing to do when you're in confusion is to walk away from makes, what makes you feel comfortable and what you've always known. And in those moments, God can send you into that state of confusion to stir the pot up of your life so that you'll be willing to go through the process to not only begin looking to him for your hope, for your source, for your guidance, and be willing to follow him, but so that you can discover what God's prepared for you the entire time. You see, God knows where Abram, Abram is. It's not the best place for him. Even though he left Babel and is now in Haran, it's still not what God had prepared for his life. And because Jesus is the God who leads us into good things, he spoke, he intervened, he drew him out of that place of comfort again and drew him on a path to find his greatest potential. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it's a famous verse, but through the prophet Jeremiah, God is speaking to the nation who's in the midst of a hardship. They, because of their wickedness and their sin, God let an enemy nation take them over and ha wreak havoc in their nation. Many of them were sent into exile, became slaves of another nation. But God's heart for the nation of Israel was good, and he wanted them to know that this wasn't going to be their end. They weren't going to end in destruction or confusion or suffering, that God had something more planned for them. And in Jeremiah 20, 29, 11, God says, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for good and not disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Somebody say a future and a hope. 
God wants to give you a future. God wants to give you a hope. His plans for you are good. Why? Because he is good. He is a good daddy. He is a good father. And nothing he leads you through isn't intended to harm you, but it's intended to get you to the, on the path towards your greatest potential. And just like Abram, going through all this stuff, coming out from the place of confusion, through the place of apathy and comfort, and into the place of God's blessing, we find ourselves in this place today. Because in our culture today, beloved, there are many cultures, many messages. There are many things being sent our way through the media, through people we rub shoulders with every day. There's much communication, and at the heart of all of it is a pull to either draw you to worship idols and false gods or get you to become the god of your own life, to give yourself over to your occupation, your hobby, your pursuit, your relationship to the point that that attachment dictates everything about your life with no respect to God, or you become the god of your own life and live as if God doesn't exist. But God has sent a message out into the world too for thousands and thousands of years. And this message is the core of the gospel. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's urging us to respond to the message that will transform our lives, our family line, and in essence will bless the entire world by our response. So just like God chose Abram and the descendants of Abraham to be a holy people, God has chosen you to be a holy people. God chose you. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, you're not like that, for you are a chosen people. Somebody say a chosen people. Do you know you are chosen by God? You. Not just us in general. You specifically are chosen by God. What are you chosen to do? You are chosen to be a royal priest to be a minister in the presence of God. You're chosen to be a holy nation unlike anyone that's ever existed. You're chosen to be God's very own possession. Why? Because his heart for you and his passion for you supersedes every other desire. And as a result, because of his choice of choosing you, you now can show others the goodness of God. You. God wants to use you and your life to reveal his goodness into the world. For he called you out of the darkness, out of the confusion, out of the place of apathy, and into his marvelous light. God wants his light to emanate and to explode out of you so that you can now draw others out of their confusion, out of their apathy, and into a life-changing encounter with the Son of God. Out from among many nations, tribes, and tongues, And through faith in the Son of God, God is raising up a family for the Father, an eternal companion and bride for the Son to live in fellowship with Him forever and forever and forever. And Jesus is the God. As we're retraining our thoughts, retraining our minds on who God is so we can give ourselves more to Him, Jesus is the God who leads us into good things. He calls on us to follow Him. Why? Because His yoke is easy and His burden is light. And today, he's inviting you to trust him with your whole heart, to hold nothing back, to take a step of faith. And I know taking steps of faith can be scary. That first step is often the scariest. I think of Abram in this story when God said, go, how is he going to face his wife on that one? I mean, like, what? we got to move. Well, what's the plan? I don't know. God just said go. Yeah, 
picture yourself in that conversation. That ain't going well. You know, but they did it. They trusted God and they moved. The first step of taking a step of faith is always the scariest, but it's always worth it. Why? Because his plans for you are for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this moment as we enter to a time of prayer. The music begins to play and we just get real before the Lord. What area of your life, what areas in your life Are you still battling confusion? Where are you stuck? Where in your heart, what gods are your heart being pulled to? Is it your job? Is it a relationship? Is it drugs, alcohol, the party life? Is it the things that pull you away from giving God your whole self? God didn't send the flood because he's mean. He didn't scatter the languages because he's vindictive. He did it for the good of the people. He did it to cause them to step back and say, okay, what's going on with my life? What does God want for me? And how can I take that step into the good things that God has for us? Maybe your heart's being pulled towards your career or hobbies in your spare times. Maybe your personal goals and aspirations don't have God in the mix. One of the reasons we struggle with trust is the resistance that we wrestle with in our own hearts. Because deep down, like Nimrod, we don't really believe that God is good. We blame him for our pain, and we don't recognize that he is the one that will help us get through our pain. We blame him for our struggle, we don't recognize that he's the one ready to give us breakthrough in our struggle. We blame him for our sin, for our brokenness, we don't recognize that he's the one that wants to heal our very souls. What area of your life are you still battling? What part of your life have you yet to turn over to the Lord? What step of faith are you waiting for before you're willing to take a risk to begin God in the journey towards your promised land? Maybe you're here today and you don't have a relationship with God. There's never been a time in your life where you confessed your sins to the Lord and asked Him to save your soul. To ask Him to forgive you of your sins and to be your Lord and Savior. And so the first step of faith you need to make today is you need to say, Jesus, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to know you. I want to know my sins are forgiven. I want to know that if I were to die today, that I would go to be with you and nowhere else. God, I love you, but teach me how to fall in love with you. If that's you here today, with every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, if that's you here today, would you just slip your hand up so I can pray for you and say, Pastor Joey, I want a relationship with Jesus. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to know that if I were to die today, I would go to heaven. Maybe you're here today and you're just still wrestling with things in your life and you need a breakthrough. And you know there's some steps of faith you need to take. There's some things you need to do. But you've just been too fearful to take that step of faith. In just a moment as we, after I pray, I'm going to invite you to come forward and lay yourself down in these first row of seats and just to give yourself to the Lord. 
commit your heart to him today. Maybe you need healing, you're struggling with sickness and you need healing and you like prayer for healing, we invite you to come and respond. But whatever God is speaking to your heart, you respond to what the Lord is doing. Lord God, we just thank you for this place. We thank you for the testimony of your word. We thank you, God, that our faith is not foolish. Our faith is not in vain. That, that even the historical record, the archaeology is proving the very stories we read about in the Bible. And for the longest time, they said there's no evidence. But we're uncovering. And every new discovery we find, we find more and more that the Bible is true. Your word is true. God, forgive us for doubt. And God, help us to trust in your word. Trust in who you are without compromise. God, I pray for everyone here today. I pray, God, for the struggles in their lives. I pray, God, for those who are in a place of confusion where maybe they don't know what decision to make or what to do. Maybe they're struggling with something they've not been able to overcome. God, that you give them the faith to take a step of faith. And that you would just minister to us today. In Jesus' name.